in many, many cases, universities have stood up and fought for what's important for all of us globally. In many, many instances, universities have also not stood up and, and let things happen. Welcome to the Research for Good podcast. I'm David Ellis, and today I'm going to be talking to Professor Rajni Nadu about their research on higher education. Welcome, Rajni. Thank you very much. Can you tell me a bit about how you ended up at the University of Bath? Well, it's a um, long story. So, and maybe it's, I start off from South Africa. So I did a law degree as my first degree and I, this was during the apartheid era. So um, the government was just starting to change the laws and one of the institutions that they were reforming were the universities. So the universities were the only organizations in South African apartheid period that was beginning to be open to students of all uh, colors and, and ethnicities. And I found that I was the only woman of color in the class. And so that was quite a sobering and difficult um, experience for me. Um, I did well and I passed, but it, it taught me quite a few things about what it means to be included and excluded in, in higher education. Um, so when I completed my law degree, I just found law to be quite boring. And so there was an opportunity to start an alternative university in, in South Africa that took in students that were from the most disadvantaged parts of society. Um, they did one year with us, and if they passed, they went to the most elite universities in, in South Africa. So this was funded by the Scandinavian government, and we had alternative admissions, um, so we uh, students did a test for potential, and if they passed, they got in, they were fully funded. And the, the curriculum had both world literature and world history, as well as African literature and African history. So it brought together the, the global and the local. And I suppose through being involved in that organization, I could see the power of universities and what they could do in society for the young people, but also for the country, for the communities that they were a part of. And I then decided that I really wanted to study um, universities as organizations. What, what could they do in society? What was their purpose? Where did they come from historically? So I uh, then did a master's degree at the University of London and then a PhD at the University of Cambridge. And the examiner of my PhD was from the University of Bath. And he let me know that there was a position going and I applied from it and that's how I came to Bath. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, can you say a little bit about what your what your PhD was, was on specifically? Yes, so my I moved from uh, law to social science. So my PhD was what how do universities respond to change in society? So I looked at a case study of universities during the apartheid era in South Africa when they were being accused of being racist themselves. For example, the elite universities had 20% black students, 80% white students in a country which where 80% 
of society was black. Why were they not doing anything about it, etc.? And what could make them transform? And that thesis then became uh, was published and became quite important in transforming uh, universities in South Africa. In, in terms of the methods that you used during your PhD, was it were you going out into the field or were you? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So I was interviewing uh, students and and especially staff members, leaders of universities like vice chancellors, um, as well as uh, professors and and deans and so on. And the interesting finding that came out was that it wasn't that they were racist and they were excluding black students. It was much more that they believed in academic standards and they believed that academic standards was the score that you got at school. And of course, if you're very, very poor, you go to a very poor school. You have schools with very lowly qualified teachers and you have no chance of getting that amazing score that's going to get you into a top university. So universities then reproduce inequality. The rich get into university, do well, get better jobs. The poor don't. It makes me think a little bit about, you know, teaching people how to get a test score because they're ingrained in the system that teaches, that knows the test. And then anyone who comes from the outside, it also makes me think a little bit of the psychology of like what IQ is or what a test is and is it actually measuring what's fair. It yes. like in that case, it very much wasn't fair. Yes, right. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it's such an obvious question, really, but, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I mean, it, it sounds like so much of that work was informed by your early experiences when you were studying your undergrads. It sounds like that was what inspired you to go and do that research. Yes, that's true. It's two things, three things in form of, about that experience informed my further research. One was just feeling not included. I mean, I, I wasn't allowed to live on the campus, so all the other students could live on the campus, but because of the race laws, by law, I was not allowed to live on campus, so I had to go home and travel quite a long distance every day. So there was all that exclusion. But the second was there was an amazing professor who developed a course on African literature and critical studies. And for me, that was really transformative because he taught us how to read literature in a way to understand the power relations, to understand more about society. So it's not just the novel, but everything around the novel. And he also gave us images of great writers in our own country. So, you know, of course, Shakespeare is important, but the whole curriculum was all about Shakespeare. There, there was nothing else. And, and so that gave me the confidence. And the third was um, there was a black consciousness movement in South Africa that was developed by someone called Steve Biko. And that just taught young black people, whether they were of Indian heritage or mixed race or black, to be really proud of who they were and that we were the solution, we were not the problem. And I think, you know, that made me quite bolshy and difficult as a young person, but it also gave me a huge amount of confidence. And so I tried to, to think about all of those areas in relation to my research and to make more sense of it and to look for data and evidence of where this works and where it doesn't. Um, 
if you could just talk a little bit about the impact that your PhD had. Yep. So once apartheid was over and Nelson Mandela came to power, all the universities were very, very interested in how to transform the organization to to recruit more black students and to ensure that they succeed. So I was called upon um, by many university leaders to come and talk to them and to their uh, staff about what sort of tests to use to recruit students, um, how do you attract more black students into the university, and what sort of support mechanisms do you put in place to enable them to succeed, especially since these were still quite elitist and exclusionary institutions where black students were not made to feel at home. And in terms of the success of that, was it fairly across the board or did some in, did you feel that some institutions did a better job of enacting on some of that advice than others? Yeah, I think, you know, there's still a lot of problems in South African universities. So I think if we look at the elite universities over time, they changed a lot. So they did have alternative admissions. We now have many, many more black students in the elite universities. But the problem has kind of transformed because now we have the majority of students, for example, at the University of Cape Town are black students, but they're middle class black students who've been to private schools. So the big issue that we have is black working class students are still excluded from these institutions because of you know, financial means especially. There's no free higher education in South Africa. There are tuition fees. There are loans, there are kind of all sorts of arrangements to help support students, but all of that is not enough to enable students to attend and, and to succeed. And is your work now exploring that at the moment as well? No, not so much. So um, I've moved a little away from looking specifically at South Africa, and my work is now more exploring inclusion in universities in, in general. So also inclusion in terms of, of students, you know, who are the students that are included and excluded in universities across the world? Do we have good examples from other countries where, where they're really making a change, where they are including students from very disadvantaged communities and where the students are succeeding? And we're trying to really find lessons from elsewhere to to implement in, in other countries. It's always hard to do because each country is very different and the context and the history is different. But I think you can learn lessons. And one of the interesting ways to look at this is not to always look at the rich and the powerful countries, but also to look at countries in the South that are poorer. So for example, Colombia, has gone through a huge peace process where the government has made peace with the guerrilla movement. And universities have opened up to take young people from those movements into their institution um, to develop employability skills, citizenships skills, and to get young people who were on the different sides to, to come together um, to work. And I think we can 
learn a lot of lessons from from those cases. So it sounds like that's your work's focusing on that now and particularly about how that might be able to benefit UK institutions specifically? Yes, that's right, because what we're finding in UK is that there's a rise of quite authoritarian right-wing movements who are really trying to pitch groups of young people from different communities against each other. You know, so where we have groups of young white working class disadvantaged and disaffected young people, they being told that the problem is because of immigrants or because of communities of color and so on. So you, you're getting this antagonism that's arising between, between young people without really talking about what the real causes of unemployment are. And I think universities in, in, in Britain need to be able to reach out to these disaffected young people even if they don't become students at the university, but we need to find ways of becoming more popular, not populist, and talking to young people about citizenship and the future and inclusion and how to live in a peaceful society. To, to me, that sounds very much like you know public enga- engagement with the local communities from from different universities. Would that yes. be an example? But presumably, yes. there's more. There's more, a lot. It can go a lot further than that. You know. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's it's public engagement. It's linking up with young youth groups. Um, it's you know having more courses that are non-degree courses, and it would also just be going out to communities and talking to people about citizenship and civil society and what does it mean to live in peace and what does it mean to live in in conflict and how that affects everyone everywhere and to give people some hope. Higher education in the UK has changed a lot in probably quite a short space of time. Uh, I mean, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on what changes are in an impactful way being helpful, do you think? And, and, and also on, on the opposite, what, what's, what, what's not going well? Yeah, so um, my, my most recent work is about how universities either compete or cal- collaborate for the global good, and I'm, I'm using the word the global good rather than the, the national good or the public good, because often when we talk about the good that universities do, we talk about you know how useful is a university for a particular country. But I think given the fact that we have problems now in the world, you know, the climate crisis, uh, escalating violence, all of that geopolitical rivalry, none of this can be solved by a country on its own. It has to be solved by countries working together. So my research has now moved to how do universities work together to contribute to the global good. And I think the big barrier in, pl- in place at the moment is what I've called the competition fetish. And by this I mean that competition has become like this magical word w- that competition can be applied to universities to solve absolutely every problem. So we have rankings and we have the teaching excellence framework and we have the research excellence framework and we have market competition and all these different types of competitions come together and it moves universities in a certain direction and often away from the public good or the global good. Um, You know, for example, we talk now about students as consumers 
and in a way that's really positive because you know for far too long in in the history of higher education professors have been more worried about their research rather than their teaching so this acts as a very nice um, counter to that it makes us really think about how we teach and and think about the students but on the other hand it's made students feel that education is something that you buy off a supermarket shelf for example so they've paid their money they get the product and they pass you know they they forget about the resp- their responsibility for working very hard and professors start worrying about whether they the content is too difficult should they spoon feed students should they not talk about difficult areas should they make it as easy as possible to pass so i think there there are those sorts of negative ramifications which takes away from the value of of a higher education which is about being challenged and which is about pushing all your boundaries and learning about things that might make you uncomfortable um so and and rankings of course you know also push us in certain directions um when you think about where rankings have come from it started off in order to sell newspapers so a newspaper in the USA started ranking so that parents would buy the newspaper but it's become really a very powerful way to influence universities all universities even those who have no hope of doing well in the rankings play the ranking game it strikes me that it, the time it takes for these rankings to be compiled in some cases right. is of huge cost to I guess the taxpayer but also students in their fees. Yep, it's a huge cost, a time cost, financial cost, and it's made all universities compete for the same things. So we've lost, you know, what would be really good in a system of higher education is to have different types of universities really having different missions. So some may be more vocational, some will be more academic. and we've lost that because all of them now are being judged by the same ranking criteria which is research power or you know how many students get first class passes do students get high salary jobs at the end of graduation um so a student who goes into the public sector or does really good work isn't valued in that way so i think there there're quite a few negative impacts and i suppose it's also impacted how researchers at an individual level make decisions about what they do because they need to then feed into that system somehow yes exactly so you you also have you know we have various research excellence frameworks for example which are really government sponsored competitions and in some ways when i've looked at the evidence it looks as if they have done some good so people have had to focus more on what sorts of research they want to to follow universities and departments have had to develop a better research strategy um so in in you know it's been more competitive people say that quality has become higher i don't know i have to really try and understand what is meant by quality and and how we measure that but i think what really worries me is when i hear young academics talking now they don't talk about the content of their research they've lost the inspiration and the excitement about what they're researching and what they're finding they talk about 
what sort of journal they've published in. Have they published in an A-list or a four-star journal? And I, I just find that incredibly sad. The, the pros and the cons of some, you know, where we move towards this kind of more ranking or competitive yeah. elements. But assuming that there's probably quite a few problems with that, how, how do we fix that? How do we limit yeah, the harm? So, so I suppose, you know, the first thing I would say is that it's, I'm not saying that all competition is bad and we should have no competition because competition is also quite fair if you have competition by academic merit. That's a really good thing because then it's fair in relation to how students enter university, but it has to be contextualized academic merit. And by that, I mean, you cannot expect students from poor schools and students from rich schools to compete on the same basis. You have to really understand that they're not at a level playing field. And you have to, to, to understand how to assess the potential of a student who comes from a disadvantaged background. But at the same time, both those students, the student from the advantaged background and the student from the disadvantaged background, have to succeed. They have to get the same degree. So the standards are still maintained, but you kind of contextualize admissions. And we know that, you know, research, scientific research, all types of research, the big motors competition, academics compete against each other. You know, who can, fi who can find the solution to some problem quicker. They spend hours and hours in labs just trying to outdo an, another academic. So in some cases, competition is positive and it's very useful. But I think when we apply competition to everything, that becomes really, really dysfunctional. And it drives us towards values uh, of, com of, you know, being competitive, not being collaborative not being very ethical. We've seen a dean of a business school has recently been imprisoned for manufacturing data for the rankings. So it leads to all sorts of perverse um, behavior. And I suppose what the way in which I would suggest we, we fix it is, you know, we, we're all in rankings now. The only way in which we can fix rankings if is if universities collectively talk about some of the excesses and collectively opt out of certain types of rankings, or if we have a new form of ranking that also measures the, the global good that universities do, universities' contribution to equity, to peace, and, and so on. So, so I wonder how does all this feed in then to the, what, the, what you feel the purpose of universities are? Yes, I think universities have a really special role to play in, in society. So firstly, um, universities are normally publicly funded, and so they have a, a very specific responsibility. In, in some countries now, about 76 to 80% of the age cohort of young people who leave school into universities. So universities are responsible for a very large proportion of society's young people. And it's not just about giving them a formal education so that they can get a job. Universities are also there to mold young people. Um, you know, values are developed there, um, citizenship skills. We need to teach students about sustainability, about climate change and, and so on. So, and we need to teach students about how to, to be critical of everything. 
you know, that, that skill of critique is being lost because there's so many pressures on students just passing the exam, just passing the test, that they, they're losing that critical edge. And we need young people who can be very critical in order to protect democratic societies and to, to face all the threats that are coming towards us. So I, I do think universities have a wider responsibility uh, for the, the development of the future citizens of all countries. Um, and universities also have a responsibility in, in relation to their research. You know, when we look at the COVID pandemic, it was because governments invested so much money over long periods of time in science in universities that we were able to develop uh, the genome, you know, through the genome project to look at the sequencing of the virus and, and so on. So that's all been public money and that's a real public good that universities have contributed to. But they've had to link up with big pharmaceutical companies. And so the, um, the vaccines have been widely available in rich countries, but not available in, in poor countries. And poor countries have not even been allowed to produce their own vaccines because of the patenting laws. And I think this is a situation where universities could have protested much more. They could have made a change. They, they, they could have insisted that vaccines become much more widely dispersed for the global good, because wherever the, the virus is reproducing and spreading, that's bad for everyone, not just for, for poor countries. So I think they, you know, in many, many cases, universities have stood up and fought for what's important for all of us globally. In many, many instances, universities have also not stood up and, and let things happen. Outside of the UK, are there any examples of places where universities are doing really well in terms of equal access? Well, there's a, there's a really, really um, renowned case of the medical school in, in Cuba. And of course, we may not all agree with the, um, the Cuban political situation and, and so on. But uh, many medical schools across the world have been really impressed by what Cuba has done. So Cuba has taken disadvantaged students from across the world, including um, very poor students from America, and has recruited them into a medical school. So in, in order to, to select the students, uh, they have interviews to see whether they are suitable. They, they have various tests, academic tests, etc. And the students then have an extended degree curriculum um, where they look at all aspects of, of medicine, but they also learn about preventative medicine. Uh, they learn about philosophy. They do dancing. So it's a very rounded curriculum because they believe that future doctors should, should be global citizens and should be should be well rounded and they also learn about the ethics the you know so what does it mean to be a doctor that really wants to contribute to to the global good so even when students are in training when there is a medical emergency anywhere in the world 
um, Cuban doctors are usually the first to go there to support a, a country in need. And even when the students graduate, and they graduate as very, very good doctors, um, they have a social conscience and they continue doing good in the world even once they've left. And I think there's something there about how you mix citizenship skills, medical skills, uh, technological skills, how do you mix all of that into a curriculum and select students from right across the world, from very different communities, and turn them into excellent doctors with, with a conscience. And I think we can learn lessons from, from that sort of an example. In relation to research, there's a very interesting global collaboration between uh, universities in Latin America and the EU, where they've come together to look at what sort of solutions can we have to help protect the, the Amazon. Um, and that's produced some really interesting research, which has then impacted on, on policy. When we think about universities providing a well-rounded education, there's obviously some differences within the UK, um, particularly in Scotland, where you have four-year undergrads with no tuition fees. I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. You're absolutely right. Um, Scotland is a fantastic model of higher education and I really, really hope that Scotland challenges all forms of pressure that make them change the, the higher education system there because I think the, the lack of tuition fees is really important, um, especially if you want to attract more students from disadvantaged communities. I really like that extended uh, degree program very much because I think it, it produces much more rounded uh, students. You know, students may come in and say, oh, that's too much, do we have to do all of this? But I think if we look at the graduates, when they look back, they'll be really pleased that they did have that opportunity to have such a rounded curriculum. And I think we can learn in England uh, a lot of lessons from what has, what has worked in, in Scotland and we can replicate some of those lessons here in, in English universities as well. I really hope we can. It's been really great talking to you, so I think I've learned lots. Um, so thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. It's been really great talking. You've been listening to the Research for Good podcast. If you want to learn more about Rajni's work, as well as other school of management research that focuses on making the world a better place, then visit the Research for Good page on the University of Bath website. You can find the link in the episode description.